0: We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. I was disappointed that so many people had to miss our divine worship last week due to the snow because one of the primary reasons that I wanted to do a sermon series on the Nicene Creed was to teach uh, through what exactly we mean when we confess the church as Catholic. I sort of jokingly refer to that as one of the elephants in the room of Nicaea, right? Every time we read this and people are kind of confused, why are we calling the church Catholic again. So, unfortunately, if you missed that and are still interested to hear my thoughts on it, you'll have to listen to the sermon on the website. But the good news is that there's actually two elephants in the room of Nicaea, at least for evangelicals like many of us in this room. And that second elephant we get to sort of devour piece by piece today without the snow disrupting us. And that elephant goes by the name of baptismal regeneration. Baptismal regeneration is a doctrine that teaches that a person is not converted, they are not forgiven, they are not regenerated, and therefore they are not saved until they fulfill the commandment to be baptized. The doctrine of baptismal regeneration teaches that baptism becomes a cause that God uses to bring about our salvation. Therefore, it is only in the waters of baptism that the Spirit saves a person. But I'm going to try to make the case today that we ought not to accept baptismal regeneration. Now, I'm going to do this humbly and with fear and trembling. And I say that because we must be honest and confess the truth that baptismal regeneration is the view of the ancient church. There's I don't I don't say that about the first 3 centuries. There is a ton of scholarly debate about what were the baptism views represented in the first three centuries, so I'm not going to pontificate about that. But it is widely agreed upon by essentially every single church historian that from the fourth century all the way till the time of the Reformation, that there was a unanimous agreement that baptism was the cause of a person's salvation, and that people were not saved until they were baptized. And so I simply submit to us that if you don't believe in that, that's fine. But the doctrine is too ancient for us to mock it or dismiss it offhand quickly or easily. As a matter of fact, I personally would never ask you to reject something so ancient, unless I believe there were really, really good biblical reasons to do so. Most Christians probably should actually start with baptismal regeneration as their default view, just because of its ancient Pedigree, and should accept the burden of proof goes to the other side. Now, unfortunately, we simply do not have time in what I hope is 36 minutes to give a full presentation, not just, not just on baptism or regeneration, but just our views in this church on baptism at large. This is a huge topic. And so I'm going to do my best just to try and address the relationship that baptism has to salvation so that we can truthfully and honestly confess the creed even if we don't teach baptismal regeneration. So that's the goal, and I'm going to do so primarily from Acts chapter 2. Would you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 41? Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 41. When you're there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse 36. Thus saith the Lord. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So that those who received His word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. As far as the reading of God's word, please be seated. Although it is not a direct quote, Acts 2:38 is essentially where the language of the Nicene Creed comes from. Peter preaches this glorious gospel. Um, We didn't have time to read the whole thing. But I would encourage you just to read all of Acts chapter 2. It's right after Pentecost. They've just been filled with the Spirit. And Peter gets up and delivers this amazing gospel sermon. Just preaches this incredible sermon. And at the end of it, the Spirit does his work. Peter calls these people to the gospel message. The Spirit does his work. And they are cut to the heart. These men are convicted by Peter's sermon. Peter's sermon. And so they ask the great question, the most pertinent question they could ask. When a person hears the gospel and is convicted by it, what are they to do? What's my next step now that you've convinced me that Jesus is the crucified, resurrected Lord? And that's when Peter tells them essentially to do two things. Repent and be baptized. And if you do that, then two things will happen. You will receive the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit which God has promised. And so Peter calls us here to confess repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And so I would just say we can just stop there for a moment and affirm that any single person in this church should be comfortable at least saying the words that we believe in one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. I would challenge you that if you're unable to confess that, then I think you might be unable to confess Acts 2.38. This is just largely biblical language. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. So we ought to confess this in our church as if we are confessing scripture. But obviously, while we confess it, what's most important is how we understand it. What does it mean? And as you can imagine, this text has become one of the strongest proof texts for people, Christians who believe in baptismal regeneration. This is one of their favorite texts to go to, wherein they essentially tell us that this is the argument that Peter has made. That if you want your sins forgiven, what must you do? Sure, you can repent all day long, but that's not all you're called to do. You must be baptized. And when you are baptized, then you shall receive the forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit. And this is not, although this is one of the primary proof texts, it's certainly not the only time the New Testament at least in language, links baptism and salvation together. This happens all throughout the New Testament. Time doesn't permit us to look at every single example. But let me just give you a few. So later on in the book of Acts, when Paul, who then was called Saul, is converted, he, he sees Jesus in a vision. He's blinded for a period of time. He believes in Jesus. And so someone who was sent to him by God tells him, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So Paul was told to wash away his sins in baptism. And this is why Paul had a very high view of baptism. Why he wrote things like Romans chapter 6, for example, wherein he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So we see a high view of baptism in Paul, and obviously in Peter. Because if you think that this is the closest that Peter has ever connected baptism and salvation in Acts 2, you'd be wrong. He connects it even more closer in his first epistle, saying, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I could provide more and more examples, but I think these are probably sufficient. Does not Scripture, then, clearly teach that the forgiveness of sins and salvation can only happen when a person is properly baptized? Right? Why in this church are we trying to get around such clear and simple and obvious clarity? Well, I want to give you a number of reasons why, specifically two. These are not the only reasons. I'm just trying to give the two most strong, the strongest and most pertinent to the text. The first reason why we in this church, following much of the Protestant Reformation, reject a baptism that literally saves is because we believe it contradicts the doctrine of justification by faith alone. We think that a clear doctrine in Scripture is that men are justified, which means their sins are forgiven, by faith in Jesus. And so to demand baptism on top of their faith is a rejection of faith alone. This really is probably our chief and primary concern as it pertains to the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. We would argue essentially that the Spirit has not bound Himself to the waters of baptism, but He regenerates people as He wills and that throughout Scripture we see that it is men and women who have faith in Jesus who are being saved it is when a person comes to Christ by faith that they are forgiven and this oftentimes happens even before their baptisms so we argue biblically that men and women are saved by faith in Jesus even before their baptisms now like with the baptism text I could also spend the rest of our time today showing proofs about faith alone so for time's sake, I'm just going to give you a handful of them. This has been a major emphasis. If you remember our sermon series on John, Jesus has been, has been emphasizing this all throughout John, that we are saved when we believe in Jesus. The most famous example being John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You have eternal life when you believe in Jesus. But without a doubt, the clearest teacher of justification by faith alone is the Apostle Paul. It's a huge theme in almost all of his epistles. i just give you just a small snippet from some of the major ones. Paul tells us in the book of Romans, "...for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified, which means forgiven, by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith." you receive your justification by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of who? The one who has faith in Jesus. Paul writes in his next book, the book of Galatians, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And there's obviously the famous verse in the book of Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so we would respond to the clarity of the baptism text by saying, but there's also clarity in all these texts that teach a person is justified when they believe. Their sins are forgiven when they come to Christ. That's when they're regenerated. And so that means that every single person, every single adult who believes in Jesus and then obeys Him in baptism were justified and forgiven before they actually entered the waters. Because they had faith. And so we would argue baptism just simply in that scenario cannot be the means of regeneration. Because they have faith which justifies. Faith which forgives. Faith which regenerates. And to to bring this back a little bit closer to Acts, I think that this is demonstrated in the fact that right after Acts 2, in the next chapter, Peter preaches another sermon to a group of Jews. It's a very, very similar context a very very similar sermon and he tells them what they need to do to be forgiven and it's interesting he leaves baptism out this time he says or forgive me I think I got ahead of myself well uh, 238 hold on I'm sorry I think I lost myself there I may have skipped too far ahead in my notes <clears throat> Oh, I'm sorry, I did skip too far on my notes. Hold that thought, we'll come back to that thought later. I want us to go back to Acts chapter 2. Before we get there, I need to build a case here. Isn't it interesting that in the creed, which says we believe in one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, that's not what actually Peter says. Peter does not tell them, Peter does not tell these people that all they need is baptism to be forgiven. The creed unfortunately leaves the other thing that Peter mentioned, which is repentance. Right? So look at verse 38. Acts 2:38. After they are cut to the heart and they ask Peter and the others, Brothers, what shall we do? What does Peter say? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So again, one has to wonder why repentance was left out of this equation. Because we cannot conclude from Acts 2.38 that baptism is sufficient to save a person because it's not the only thing Peter mentions. So if you're going to believe in baptismal regeneration, you should at least also affirm that without repentance, your baptism does nothing for you. Because that's what Peter says. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Yet we have baptismal regenerationists all throughout church history, all throughout the world, baptizing infants who have not repented, calling them saved. But where's the repentance that Peter requires? And this is now where the point I was trying to get to. What's amazing is he preaches another sermon just like this one, wherein he only mentions repentance as it means for forgiveness, and he leaves, uh, the, he leaves baptism out of it. I have it on the screen for you in Acts 3. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. It seems like if baptism was a necessary part of this forgiveness process, Peter deceived these men. They could repent, but their sins would still not be blotted out, right? Because they haven't done the necessary baptism part. No, so it seems like what's the constant in these texts? Repentance. It seems like it's actually the repentance that's doing the forgiveness and not so much the baptism. Because as Peter says in the next chapter, you can be saved by your repentance. It seems as if the true emphasis in Acts 2 is the repentance part, not so much on the baptism part but a stronger uh, argument that i think we could make is the connection that peter also makes with the holy spirit read verse 38 with me acts 2:38 again and peter said to them repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of jesus christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the holy spirit so peter tells these men that their sins will be forgiven And that they will also receive the Holy Spirit who confirms and seals this reality. Right? So we can sort of rightly conclude that being filled with the Spirit is an indication that you are saved. It's an indication that God has forgiven you of your sins. And so this raises an interesting biblical question. Do we have warrant to believe that people can receive the Holy Spirit apart from their baptism? Let me... begin with the lesser argument, I think experience alone confirms this. Anyone who is born and raised in a country like ours, a country that's filled with Baptists, which means you have inevitably encountered many, many people who had some sort of genuine conversion experience before they were baptized you have probably inevitably encountered people who had a genuine, authentic conversion experience and showed fruits of the Spirit even while they were waiting for their church to baptize them. Experience just simply shows us that, yes, men and women can be filled with the Spirit even before they're baptized. And I would argue the negative is also the case experientially. That just because someone has been baptized, we don't have experiential reason to believe that they have the Holy Spirit. There are people who get baptized, and yet we see no life change in them whatsoever. As a matter of fact, you can look up certain statistics that will show you that if you were to compare children who were born and raised in a Christian home by parents who baptized them, and children who were born and raised in a similar Christian home, going to church, very faithful, who are not baptized, yet the difference in the children is minuscule. In other words, parents who baptize their children basically raise the same children as parents who don't baptize their children. So what that tells us is that the baptism plays almost no role in how we would expect these children to behave. Yet, we're told by the baptismal regenerationists that half of these children are grown-up pagans and the other half are regenerated, Bible-believing, born-again Christians. So don't you think the baptized children should probably produce better fruit and more effects than the unbaptized children? But they're not. So we just don't have an evidentiary experience that that tells us, yeah, that baptized child, definitely saved. That unbaptized, definitely not saved. Experience doesn't indicate this in either way. We see people receiving the Spirit before their baptism, and we see people leaving the waters of baptism without Him. But you're probably thinking, I'm a Christian, I'm in church, I'm not interested in experience and data, give me the Bible. Well, I think we have a biblical reason to believe this as well. You can keep your marker here, but turn just a little bit later on in the book of Acts to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, we're going to read verses 42 through 48. Yet again, I wish we could read the whole chapter, read it tonight. It's glorious. It's so good, but we don't have time. Acts 10 verses 42 through 48. Peter is preaching right now in this sermon to a man named Cornelius and many other... He was a Roman, a Gentile, and many other Gentiles are with Cornelius. And he preaches another long sermon to them, and here's what Peter says. And he commanded us, speaking of Jesus and the apostles, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So let's stop there. Here's yet another example of the same Acts 2.38 Peter preaching a sermon and telling people that they can be forgiven apart from their baptism. You believe in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. But that's not the point we're making here. Let's move on. Verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. So after Peter preaches a gospel to Cornelius and the other Gentiles with him, he preaches the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, tells them to believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. They hear the word and they accept it and the Holy Spirit falls upon them. They receive the Spirit. They're extolling God. They're speaking in tongues. And this is amazing, the Jewish Christians around them, like, wow, even the Gentiles are being saved by believing in Jesus. And so it's only after the Spirit has clearly indwelled these men, causing them to worship God and perform miracles, that Peter then says, on this basis, why would we not baptize them? Right? He does not say, I get that they have the Spirit, but they're not forgiven yet, so we need to go get them baptized so that they can be forgiven. No, he says, they're already forgiven. They're already Christians just like us, so what would stop us from baptizing them? Let's go get these Christians baptized. So we would argue that this is a clear passage that shows that the forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit can come by faith prior to baptism. Now I want to be fair to some of our baptismal regeneration brothers. Our Lutheran ones specifically uh, are much closer to us on this view than other baptismal regenerations, like, like Roman Catholics for example. Because Lutherans, while they do argue that baptism causes and produces regeneration, They also agree with us that a person can be regenerated and forgiven apart from baptism by their faith. So a Lutheran would theoretically have no problem with Acts 10 or what we just got done teaching. So they're essentially saying that both baptism and faith are tools that God uses to regenerate. So if you have baptism, you've been regenerated. If you have faith, you've been regenerated. God's not bound to only one of them. And while we certainly welcome that concession, we're thankful for that. Uh, there's a couple reasons why we think that that's a bad way to try to harmonize Acts 10 with Acts 2. And those two reasons are um, first and foremost, in our creed, what do we confess? We don't just confess baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. There is one baptism for the remission of sins. And that's not just the creed speaking, that's Paul speaking. Right? He tells us in Ephesians, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now, why is that relevant? Because our argument is that what the Lutherans accidentally do in this very righteous thing of trying to maintain justification by faith is we would argue they've actually created two different baptisms then. All right, because now here's what we have. Adults who believe in Jesus and get baptized, they've already been forgiven by their faith. So what, is, what becomes of their baptism? It's now primarily symbolic. But infants, when they're baptized, they don't have faith yet, yet they're still regenerated. So what becomes of their baptism? It's regenerative. So the Lutherans have now presented us with two baptisms. There's a symbolic one for believers and a regenerative one for infants. We're saying, no, we want baptism to be the same exact thing for every single person. There's only one of them. We want baptism to do the same things for every single person. And the other reason why we would reject this is all those texts that we read that link baptism and salvation together... They were written to adults, right? Like we don't want to end up having a view where infants are being regenerated by baptism, but adults are being regenerated by faith because all of the texts that speak of baptism and salvation were written not to infants, but to adults. So we, we appreciate their attempt to harmonize sola fide, justification by faith alone, with baptismal regeneration, but we, we think there, there needs to be a different way to bring these two things together. And I'm going to get to how we do that in a moment. But first, I just want to remind us that Acts, going back to the point here, Acts 10 clearly teaches that you get the Holy Spirit, who is the sign of your forgiveness by faith, even prior to your baptism. And this is so clear and obvious that the Apostle Paul actually uses it as a rhetorical question to the Galatians. Right? He asked them, these people who are beginning to abandon the gospel, he says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having been begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So again, how do you receive the Spirit? By faith. By hearing and believing. And then he compares it to Abraham, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And that last point becomes very important for us, the way Peter links his understanding of salvation to Abraham's salvation. I think he does this, I think what Paul does here, Peter actually does in Acts 2, although Peter's much more subtle about it. So turn back to Acts chapter 2 and read verse 39 with me. After the, the preaching of repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of sins and the receiving of the Spirit, he says this, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, we could preach a whole sermon about how calling is now tied to salvation and how does that play into, is every person that's baptized called? But we won't go there. What I want us to recognizes that scholars across the traditions all agree that this language of the promises for you and for your children is hearkening back to Genesis when God first made his covenant with Abraham. This was the language that God used when he made the Abrahamic covenant. And so, not everyone puts the pieces together the same way, but all theologians recognize that there is some relationship between the the New Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant. And there is therefore some relationship between believers who are saved today and their father in the faith, Abraham. Peter is trying to tell his Jewish audience, who at this time were thinking they were under the impression that salvation can only come to the descendants of Abraham. And this is why many of them, all even up through Acts, argue that the Gentiles couldn't be saved. And what Peter is doing is showing that, yes, the promise is for the descendants of Abraham, but faith, repentance, and baptism are how you become part of Abraham. It's not a biological reality. It's a spiritual reality. But nonetheless, what Peter is trying to preserve in his new covenant sermon is that, yes, Abraham is still our father. We still want to be in his family. We want to be blessed with him and have the same salvation that he has he wants them to see this is not a break I am not teaching you that Abraham had one promise and one way of salvation and God has started something new no we are continuing that promise in that covenant trajectory so the point that I'm making between what we saw in Galatians just as Abraham believed what we see here is that our next reason for why we reject baptismal regeneration is because we see baptism as the new circumcision. The first reason is because we think you're justified by faith alone. The second reason is we see baptism as a new circumcision. And so our argument is that the problem for a baptismal regenerationist view is that Abraham was not saved by his sacrament. Abraham was not saved by, in, or through circumcision. And therefore, for the promise to be consistent, we cannot be saved by our sacrament. By our circumcision. Abraham was given the sacrament of circumcision, and that continued all the way through Moses. But what Peter is telling them in Acts 2 is that we no longer have circumcision as a sacrament. It's been replaced by baptism. And if you think, oh, you're reading into the text, I don't know if I would make that connection. Scholars, again, across the tradition, argues that Paul does that exact thing in Colossians 2 where he says, In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So what everyone agrees Paul is doing in this text is there's a spiritual circumcision, the putting off of the flesh, the regeneration, and Abraham's had a relationship between that spiritual reality and a circumcision with hands. And we also have a relationship to that spiritual reality with baptism. So baptism does for us what circumcision did for Abraham. Baptism is the new circumcision. And so this raises the question then, did circumcision save Abraham? And to answer that question, we're going to go to Romans chapter 4. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 beginning right at the beginning in verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So not only does Paul very clearly establish in the first eight verses that both Abraham and David were justified by their faith, by believing, He then goes on to remind his Jewish audience that circumcision did not save Abraham. How could it? He was saved before he was circumcised. Circumcision did not cause his salvation. And this becomes the pattern for Paul of how we are saved today. We are saved the same way Abraham is, which is by faith apart from his sacrament. And so the simple point we're trying to make is this. If faith and not circumcision saved Abraham, then faith and not the new circumcision saves us. Abraham was not saved by faith plus sacraments. He was saved by faith before sacraments. And so we, his spiritual descendants, want to share in his covenant, in his promises, in his blessing. Therefore, we want to be saved by our faith. Our faith like Abraham, not by our sacraments. So we maintain in this church that we are saved prior to baptism by faith, just like Abraham. But we've spent 99% of our time this morning talking about what we don't believe. And we still have yet to answer the question... How then do we understand the creed? How can we make sense of the creed even if I accept everything you're saying? Well, I think that this text here, Romans 4, helps us do that. Look with me again at verse 11. Here's a very interesting title for his circumcision. Paul says this in verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And we'll stop there. So what we want to affirm in this church is not that baptism literally saves, but that baptism sacramentally saves. And here's what we mean by that. We want to think of our baptism the way Abraham thought of his circumcision, which is that it is a sign and a seal of the righteousness that we have by faith. For time's sake, we won't talk about the seal part, but we're going to talk about the sign part. Baptism is a sign of our salvation, just like circumcision was a sign of Abraham's salvation. That's what the text says. It was a sign. And the reason that this matters and helps us answer our question is because Scripture has a habit of taking the reality that's signified and attributing it to the sign itself. The symbol and what is symbolized can actually both be called the same thing. The classic example I gave it in Sunday school this morning. If I hold up my phone with a picture of my son on it and I say, this is my son, did I tell you the truth? Not literally. My wife did not give birth to a cell phone. This is a cell phone, it's not my son. This is a picture, it's not my son. Yet if I said, this is my son, none of you would blink. Because you understand that the picture so perfectly represents him that I can just call it him. That's a an example of when what is signified can take the name of the sign. And I would argue that this is something that happens all throughout scripture. We see, for example, this happening with circumcision itself. Genesis 17, God says this, Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. God says, My covenant is in their flesh. You should be able to look at their flesh and see the covenant. But what's the problem? The covenant is not a physical thing, there's no covenant literally. Like God has this magical covenant in heaven and he puts it into their flesh. No, what is he saying? He's saying the circumcision is a symbol of this invisible covenant that I've made, but he attributes the thing signified to the sign so that you can look at circumcision and you can call it the covenant. The circumcision is the covenant, even though it's technically speaking the sign of the covenant, right? It's not the covenant. It's the sign of the covenant, but we can call it that. Paul does this with Jesus Telling us, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Is Jesus Christ a human or a lamb? Paul doesn't say he symbolizes the Passover lamb. He doesn't say he signifies the Passover lamb. He doesn't say he he resembles, he says he is our Passover lamb. But is he literally our Passover lamb? No. But the Passover lamb was a type, a a symbol, a signifier of that. And they are so closely connected that the one can take the name of the other. We see this again from Paul, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Not that the rock symbolized Christ, not that the rock resembled Christ, the rock was Christ. But is that true? Did the rock in the wilderness when the Jews were wandering and thirsty literally transform into Jesus? No. The rock symbolized Christ. It was a symbol of Christ. Yet, Paul feels comfortable because the sign is so closely connected calling the rock what it symbolizes. I feel like I could give many, many more examples, but for time's sake, I'm not going to do that. The simple point I want to make now is that I think that we can, and Scripture gives us permission to speak of baptism the same way. That baptism is not literally what causes our salvation. Baptism is not actually our salvation, but it is the sign of our salvation. And because the sign and the thing signified are so closely connected, the names are interchangeable. So this means that we, as, as, even as Reformed Evangelical Christians, even though we believe that baptism is a sign of the righteousness we have by faith, we can make it interchangeable with our faith. We can make it interchangeable with our salvation. So you should have no problem saying the words, I was saved in baptism. I was saved by baptism. Baptism is my salvation. You should have no problem confessing that, just like you have no problem saying, this is my body, this is the rock, was Christ, all those other examples. Baptism is our salvation because it is the sign and is so closely connected with the righteousness that we have by faith. But when push comes to shove, when controversy arises, those of us who are very comfortable saying you need to be baptized to be forgiven. Baptism is your salvation. When push comes to shove, we need to be ready and willing to make the technical distinction. And I would argue it's the very distinction that Paul made in 1 Corinthians when he said, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. The same Paul who regularly spoke of baptism as his salvation. We were baptized into Christ. In baptism we put on Christ. He regularly spoke of it that way. Is now here almost spurning it. And here he makes a very important distinction between baptism and believing the gospel. They're not the same thing. When Paul needs to get technical, he wastes no time now telling us that baptism symbolizes the gospel, but is not itself the gospel. Which is why I did not come to baptize. I'm not interested in baptism, but in preaching the gospel. For that's where the power of God and salvation is. The power of salvation is not technically in the waters of baptism, but in the cross of Jesus Christ. And that is why those who hear the gospel and believe are saved. Those who repent and come to Christ by faith, even before they're baptized, receive the forgiveness of sins. So what can wash away your sins? Sacramentally, baptism. Yes, sacramentally, baptism washes away your sins. But technically speaking, your sins are not forgiven because of water. Your sins are forgiven because of blood. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus